the Francis Farmer Show. We are it's been another film festival, and so we are back with another podcast. Uh, this time on the 2019 Vancouver International Film Festival, which uh, a whole bunch of us were at, and we've got four people here on the podcast. Uh, there's me, Sean Gilman, along with Evan Morgan. Say hello, hi, Evan. Hello, uh, Melissa Taminga. Hello. And making his Francis Farmer show debut, Lawrence Garcia. Hello. And between us, we all saw a whole bunch of films at VIF, but few of us were actually there at the same time. So it was kind of a weird festival this year because Lawrence and Evan, you guys were at Toronto just a couple weeks before. So you took a very kind of laid back approach to Vancouver this year. Mm -hmm. And then Melissa, you were only in town for a couple of days. Right, and I only saw five movies while I was there. So, five movies in two days, though. It's pretty good. It's like a day and a half you were there too, because you left early. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's packing a lot. Yeah. Yeah, you made the right decision, by the way, in in leaving before Joan of Arc. So, oh god, <laughs> sight unseen, I could have suggested that was the right choice. But... Yeah, definitely not worth it to uh... stay for that. Uh, yeah, well, it ended with The Lighthouse, which I know I'm, like, one of the few people that doesn't really like that movie, but <laughs> anyway. Oh, I, I, I imagine there's, you're not alone in, in here. Oh, okay, okay, good. <laughs> Feels like uh, everyone's going crazy for it, but anyway, okay. Yeah, and in, in addition to the four of us, we have some other coverage on the uh, Seattle Screen Scene website. We have Sue Lonak had a review up, and... Uh, Michael Skular, a critic from Vancouver, is supposed to be writing up something on on short films at the festival. So there's all kinds of of VIF coverage at Seattle Screen Scene this year, in addition to this podcast. But for now, we're just going to kind of talk about some of the movies that we've seen that played at VIF. uh, And but I'm not guaranteeing that we actually saw them at VIF. (laughs) (laughs) So to start us off, how about uh, Evan, since uh, I think you've done more Francis Farmer shows than anyone. Uh, why don't you start us off? With... Aside from you, of course. But Yeah, aside... <laughs> yeah I don't count. Yeah. Uh, uh, we've started how... with me before, so we'll, we'll go again. So, uh, okay. What, was, well, the what first... was the movie you saw that played at VIF? Okay, a movie that I saw that played at VIF uh, that I did not see at VIF, but which I wish I had uh, the chance to see in a theater uh, was... Uh, Michael Kerr's uh, film Amanda, uh, which uh, I know you saw uh, Ed Viff, Sean, uh, sort of based on my recommendation. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, this is a movie that I actually saw about a year ago and was sort of surprised that it ended up uh, popping up at Viff uh, after I think it had its premiere at some point in 2018. Um, at at so, Venice. Venice last at Venice? Year. Okay. Uh, and it's a movie that when I watched it last year, I responded to, quite liked it, recommended it to a few people, including Lawrence, actually, as well. Uh, but it's a movie that I was sort of skeptical of. It is the It was the first film of uh, Hers's that I had seen. And uh, the premise of the film, I guess I kind of have to give it away because I think it's impossible to talk around the movie without giving it away. But... Um, I sort of didn't know what the premise was, which is that it follows this uh, young man and and his uh, sort of immediate family, his sister 
and his sister's uh, young daughter, uh, sort of in this kind of Mia Hansen love-like uh, light kind of French drama for the first 20 or so minutes of the movie. Uh, and then a sort of tragic event occurs that uh, basically kills the mother and leaves the daughter in the care of this young man played by, um, uh, why am I blanking on his name? He's uh, Vincent Lacoste. Vincent Lacoste, my future husband, uh, Vincent Lacoste. But anyways, he, so he has to take care of this, this young girl as she's sort of struggling to deal with the aftermath of the unexpected uh, death of her mother, uh, which the premise of, of that sounds very kind of, uh, I don't know. Depressing. It sounds like the kind of depressing, yeah, European movie that I, I might not mm -hmm. respond to. And hers's style is on the surface, I think very limpid and, and plain in a way that is also not immediately appealing. And the movie has a soundtrack for example, that I think is, again, kind of playing along these very straight, clean lines of, of, of the emotions of the film. Um, and so I was sort of skeptical of the moves that it was making uh, the first time I watched it, but I ended up being won over, I think, because of how sort of pure the film is and how direct it is in dealing with uh, this girl's trauma and the aftermath uh, of, of this loss in these two people's lives. And then I watched it again sort of in advance of VIF because in the meantime, I had caught up with the rest of hers' filmography, which is quite interesting. And I think this film uh, is connected uh, to many of his other films in a lot of key ways, uh, particularly in the way that it uses like parks and these sort of public green spaces, which are quite important in his films. And the second time that I watched it, I was just totally overwhelmed by the movie. Like I was like weeping like four times throughout the movie, even at just like small scenes that that maybe aren't the kind of emotional crescendo of the film. Like there's one shot where um, Vincent Lacoste uh, meets a woman in a square and this is after his sister has died and he has a conversation with her where the woman brings up the sister, sort of asks about her and he kind of, he doesn't really lie exactly. He kind of just evades the question to not really have to get into the detail of the fact that his sister has died. And the woman walks away. Uh, Lacoste walks sort of towards the camera. And then suddenly he sort of run, like runs after this woman into the distance. And the camera holds back in this very simple kind of long shot as he's clearly describing what actually happened to his sister, to this woman. And uh, this woman just like gives him a hug sort of in this long shot. And I don't know, like that sequence just like totally caused me to break down when I watched it a second time. Like there's just something so true about like the little details of, of an interaction like that, where he's just not really sure how to deal with the emotions that he's uh, confronted with. He has himself a pretty young man. I think he's only 24 in the movie. Um, and the whole movie just seems like so closely observed uh, in that way that that scene is handled. And um, I don't know, I was overwhelmed and I think it's one of the best films of the last few years now that I've seen it a second time. Yeah, my my only regret with Amanda is that it premiered at Venice in 2018, so I can't spend the rest of 2019 flogging it as the best film of this year. <laughs> Sean, uh, your silly rules. 
I, I, I don't, I don't make the rules. Years <laughs> happen across my school orders, whether I like it or not. No, this it's an amazing movie, and it's the kind of movie that I didn't know uh, how much I needed it until I saw it. After you know, I, I saw it like quite late into the film festival. I think it was like one of the last movies I saw, and it's so different from all of these other art house movies that are like trying to be a peach upon where ethical or you know trying to <laughs> uh demonstrate how you know unique and stylish and creative their director is or trying to hit you over their head with their you know important themes or big you know thematic or dramatic shifts and it's just this really quiet underplayed drama that is incredibly well made without ever really demonstrating the technique behind it and it's it's just the purity is the word i thought of it it's just it's so pure in its dedication to this just simple scenario with these simple characters and i i loved it so much yeah well as evan mentioned like he recommended to me like a year ago i didn't see it at the festival but um I guess you said underplayed, and I'm not I'm not so sure that I would use that description exactly because yes, it's like understated in all um, the ways that it is. But part of what I appreciated about it, and part of what I was skeptical of, maybe as it was unfolding, like it won me over by the end. But part of what I like so much about it is how direct it is. Like, um, yeah, like there's a final scene, um, like early on before or the the sort of traumatic event happens with the sister it's set up that they're planning to go to this like Wimbledon um Wimbledon match in and they're going to and they're they're going to watch it and the film eventually eventually gets there and in this last scene you see um the young girl and Vincent Lacoste's character and they're watching the match and one of the the players is just getting beaten down by the other and in this moment, like this girl is sort of like confronted with all of her, like she's confronted with the full extent of her trauma by watching this, like by someone lose a tennis match. And it's just like the directness of that scene and how it plays with the emotions is just, was quite overwhelming. I guess I haven't seen it a second time. And so I haven't had that sort of transformative experience that Evan describes. Like I was sort of on the fence, even though it did win me over by the end, but it's it's quite a good movie and um evan brought up mia hansen love and i think like the point of comparison i i made when i watched it the first time is to father my children which again is like a movie that's sort of um it's not like it's more bifurcated than this is so like the first hour of that um follows one character the traumatic event happens and then you follow the other characters whereas here it's sort of i think it happens within the first half hour um and so it's not quite the same but like the purity of the scenario here is and the directness of how it goes about like delivering its emotions is what i appreciated so much about it yeah that's <laughs> that sounds that sounds amazing it's not it's like the description is not like i would not put that together with something especially maybe sean that you would like but well um, i i it was completely off my radar it was not even yeah. on the list of movies to to see but evan was 
was, kept saying, go see Amanda, go see Amanda. I can't remember what it was that I skipped in order to see it, but it was something. Whatever that, it was, I guarantee it was not as good as Amanda. So. Yeah. <laughs> was it yeah, the Ken Loach or no? It might have been the Ken Loach. Oh, yeah, it was the Ken Loach. Well, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm very confident the the correct choice as much as I like Ken uh, yeah I this was my favorite movie of the festival oh really wow yeah okay so who's next uh, Melissa what, what what do you got what was one of the five okay. movies okay so? one of the five so I only really loved one I guess <laughs> so and I don't really talk about that one yet because I don't know well Parasite seems like too big to start with so um, I guess I'll go with one that I really liked at the time and I'm having a little bit of mixed feelings about in the in retrospect but um, Wet Season um, by Anthony Chen um, he also did Ilo Ilo which Sean I think you've seen and I don't know Evan and Lawrence maybe you've also seen this that one um but what season is anthony chen's um second uh film sophomore film um and it's uh, the title is a little unfortunate actually sean and i talked about this a little bit afterwards maybe um rainy season would be would be better given some of the subject matter of the film um (laughs) but um the 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 basic story is um this malaysian-born woman is uh, married to a Singaporean man and they're living in Singapore and she is a Mandarin language teacher to a um, boys school. So one part of the plot is she is um, interacting as a teacher in this um, boys school where Mandarin is the least popular subject. Everyone would much prefer to to speak English. The teenage boys have no no interest in, in Mandarin and the school system itself really sees this as kind of a dying um, subject. So she She's, there's the film on some levels about uh, kind of the way that that uh, a sense of loss of culture and language. Um, and she is also, meanwhile, um, continuing to have a child through IVF treatment. This has gone on for years. Um, and her husband is increasingly kind of alienated from her. Meanwhile, she's also taking care of her ailing father-in-law at home. Um, and this is all takes place inside the monsoon, the very short monsoon season that happens in Singapore. So the whole film has, has kind of this texture of rain um, and dampness, which very much reflects um, her mood. Um, <clears throat> and I guess what I the film has a lot of. I think ideas in it and it's trying to do a lot. There's maybe it's, it's kind of a, the plot fills overstuffed with the various elements with she's pursuing, um, trying to treat infertility. There's something going on with her marriage. She has this relationship with her father-in-law who she's caring for at home. Then she has this thing going on at school where she makes this connection with this teen boy who seems to also be someone without kind of a family and connections. And he is drawn to her, um, initially seeming like he just wants maybe another parent in his life. Um, so the, the film is, is really overstuffed. Um, and I think that Anthony Chen is trying to, um, maybe pack too many 
themes into it, but, but I did like sort of the individual themes kind of taken, um, at various points in the film, the whole idea of a loss of, of culture and a new generation, um, and the nostalgia and sense of loss that's with the older generation. Um, I liked the idea of family, um, Ling, the main character, trying to um, kind of pursuing a baby, but having this other sort of family in her life that she is caring for. And there's kind of maybe a, a bit of an obvious metaphor there with she's caring for this old man who can't take care of himself. And yet what she really wants is to have a baby. But she's there's really quite a tenderness in, in the relationship with her father-in-law. Um and so the film is trying to make this comparison between end of life care and and new life. Um, and then I think the part of the film that worked the least for me maybe was sort of where the story goes with her relationship with this teen boy. It works at the level of family because she ends up sort of seeming to start to form a new family, both with her father-in-law and this teen boy, um, that they have no blood relationship with each other. Um and I don't, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with where the film goes, um, particularly with the relationship with the teen boy. But but what I, I liked about the film was that it did, um, it wasn't afraid to kind of lean into the emotion of it and um, the overarching metaphor of this being a rainy, kind of depressing season in someone li- someone's life feels overbearing. But I think the way that Chen... Um, made it a part of the just the detailed texture um, of the film, the, the just a part of the the, the mise en scène and um, the way that you can kind of see the rain, hear the rain. Um, all of the music of the film is diegetic. There's no score, so it has this kind of very organic kind of feel. Um, and so even though the metaphor in a way is kind of just driving home, the the actual literal detail and texture of the film feels very, um, it's just, it, that element of it, it just feels quite sensory um, and connected to just how you literally feel about something rather than to the, the metaphor. And then also the main performance by... Um, what's her name? Yan Yan Yo. It's just an incredible performance. I mean, just kind of watching her on screen in just doing small things like um, feeding food to her father-in-law. There's a, there's a really kind of lovely couple of scenes where um, she and her father-in-law and this teen boy are sitting around eating a durian fruit um, in, in a marketplace. And it's, and it's just kind of one of those moments that has this this texture in this, in this field that you can just kind of sink into the, into the moment. Um, so I guess I, and I felt really moved by the film at the end. And then I also felt really uncomfortable with elements of it as well. There is, there is what I would call an assault in the film, but I'm not sure that the film necessarily sees it that way. I think, I think he's just trying to observe it without judging it. But ultimately, the implication by the end of the film is the assault is maybe a good thing after all. Um, and, and there's just kind of a discomfort um, in that element. But I, I really liked the texture of the film and the performance. The performances really all around were really, really good. Yeah. Uh, when, I, when I said that Amanda, I thought, was, over, was uh, underplayed, uh, I was specifically thinking of wet season. When yeah. I said that. <laughs> 
in that <laughs> right. not, not, I know. not, That's not why I thought under, of it. underplayed as uh, or overplayed as overdramatized. Right, exactly. And that, mm-hmm. and that the screenplay is too constructed where Amanda just sticks to those small details that that yeah. what season does get really well. I mean, that's all that Amanda is made out of is just like the small day to day events in the lives of mm-hmm. these people trying to cope with this tragedy. Whereas wet season just piles on, you know, the thematically weighted like, dramatic incident one after another until, right. you know, by, by the time it gets to the end, it's just kind of absurd. And you've lost focus on what the film was really about, which is, you know, this woman's attempts to create a family and also, you know, the way the Chinese language is dying in Singapore. Right. Yeah, which that by itself is just kind of enough. (laughs) And it's interesting because this almost felt like it could have been a first feature rather than a second feature that the director was actually there and he talked about feeling like this was maybe his most, his mature, mature, a mature, it had matured beyond his first film. But I, I, when the director says that, I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe you you think it's more mature, (laughs) but actually it's just a little bit more trying to, be more that it shouldn't and it's trying too hard or something i don't know i i haven't seen elo elo it's uh it was uh it won the golden horse best picture award in 2013 and it was the only one of the nominees that i hadn't seen and the films it beat were the grandmaster a touch of sin and chiming leong's stray dogs so (laughs) (laughs) come on yeah (laughs) a really good year for Chinese film but I, I have trouble thinking that Elo Elo is as good as those I, I don't know did either you or, or Lawrence did you or Evan see it uh, I didn't see wet season but I did edit a review of wet season um, a fairly positive review but it didn't really sound super appealing um, I, I wanted to ask is the the assault that you mentioned is it between the woman and the teenage boy or yes it is okay and, and I, I don't know, Sean, would you describe it as an, I mean, I would describe it as an assault, I think, but it's weird because the power dynamic, it seems like if it was an, you would. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I, I'm not one to say one way or the other. <laughs> it, 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 it did play really uncomfortably for me for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I don't know if in the end she would say it was an assault, but I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, it presents it as quite complicated, which I think is a good thing. But yeah, I don't know. There was something that didn't say right. It was, it was overly insistent. Yes. Yeah. And I, because it was piled on with all these other things, it, 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 it again, it felt like adding something that we didn't really need when there was so much other drama in these other, these other elements of the, of the film. Yeah. Well, I guess I'm going off this very short capsule review, but like, is it that in the end, like she sort of, it's implied that she's, is that she gets pregnant and is sort of starting this new life with the new family out of this sort of experience with the teenage boy or Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but, yeah. Right. I, I guess I'm giving away the movie, but um... yeah, yeah. Right. It's, I mean, prob- it's it probably fine. Really spoil anything? No, okay. it's probably fine. I, and d- so... I, don't, I don't think people are gonna like 
break down Brush doors out. yelling about yeah. spoilers for <laughs> wet season. Wet season. <laughs> you spoiled wet season. <laughs> I mean, hearing about the plot and knowing the title now, like I can see why it's a bit unfortunate. Um, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but then there's like, I know the end is so obvious, and like the sun literally comes out at the end <laughs> after all the rain. <laughs> and she, but, but I think that it has in the elements of it, she, she goes back home to Malaysia. Um, where her, she's just heard her mother on the phone a few times. You've just heard her mother's voice. Um, and there's just this, the interaction with her mother. Her mother kind of literally doesn't even turn around when she comes in. She just continues to do the washing. It's this really understated moment of exactly kind of how a mother and a daughter, I think, might greet each other. Like, oh, you're home. Um, and that kind of underplay, that, I wish it would have rested with that rather than like having the sun break out. It was kind of like this mix of like, oh, just trust this one moment rather than giving me the literal sun breaking out kind of thing. So I think he's, I, it just made me think he, he's an interesting director to watch. And I, I would be curious to see his next movie and also the first one. Right on. All right, Lawrence, you're up. <laughs> All right. Um... So I think this is a movie that I know Evan has seen, but I'm not sure that you, Sean or Melissa, have seen. But um, I was at home, but um, so it won the Silver Bear for Best Director at Berlin. Um, its director, Angela Shanalek, she's um, sort of grouped in with like the Berlin School. Like I think she was one of the like the very first people grouped in with the Berlin School designation uh, that Ulrich Kohler, Marin Ad are, are all part of. Um, but she's or, she's always sort of done her own thing, and she's also taken longer to break out than like Petzold has. So her 2016 film, The Dream Path, which was also at VIF a couple of years ago, um, was actually selected for a new director's new films for a director who's been working since the 90s, which is a bit of a like kind of a backhanded thing. Um, but with this movie, I think she's sort of um, she was selected for NIF. Um, I think. It, like again she won the best director at berlin and so i think this one like this one actually got distribution so i think there's a greater chance that she will sort of enter like the cinephile consciousness uh, a bit more but it it's one of those movies that you describe it and it, it it's all really in the watching like and when people watch when people watched i was at home but like people were kind of not angry necessarily, um, as you maybe felt in Joan of Arc, Sean, but there were like maybe the most walkouts I've seen uh, at the festival. And it's not because like she does anything confrontational in the, in the manner of like a provocateur, but she, the way she constructs her movies, um, the way she delivers narrative is just very idiosyncratic, very unusual. And I think it makes people angry that it doesn't fit together in the way that they want like so the story here is actually fairly like if in retrospect it's fairly simple but um it's basically about um there's a family um mother and her son and a daughter and the the son runs away um and at the beginning of the film you see him coming back um but all this is sort of parceled out in a way that you don't really know what's going on while it's happening 
um, you can piece together things at the end, but they don't come together in the way you might expect. Um, there's also sort of like a, if that's the A story, there's sort of a B story with um, one of the um, the boy's teachers and his uh, relationship that's sort of breaking down um, or sort of on the cusp of a change. Um, and so it's all, it's all about like these relationships are sort of in a sort of liminal state. They're either going to transform and go somewhere else or um, they're undergoing some sort of stress. Um, like I guess for, for Shauna, like the, the usual point of comparison is Bresson and this movie actually begins with like a, a very like intriguing unusual prologue um, that just follows like a hare running down like a mountainside and then it's shortly followed by a dog that's chasing the hare and then eventually you get a shot um, inside some sort of like concrete stable like thing where the dog has brought back the hare um, th that is now dead uh, and there's a donkey in this place and that's the beginning of the movie. Um, and after that, you cut to basically a street where you see a little girl in a red coat sitting and you see a small boy, which turns out to be the son who has run away, um, walking towards this, um, I think it's like a public pool. And he's just like taking off his um, shoes. And the, the way the shots are isolated are, I guess you could call it Brissonian, but uh, the, the way she builds her story is very idiosyncratic and sorry, I'm losing my thread, but maybe Evan can pick up. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think like the Brisson comparison makes sense in the way that she like constructs very specific shots. Like, although this one's somewhat less so, like the dream path, which I like quite a bit more and was very taken with a couple years ago, um, is more like hand shots and these like insert shots that are very Bersonian. Uh, this one seems to be operating a little bit in individual shot choices, like a little bit closer to a kind of master shot thing. Um, the other one, or the Dream Path also in 4.3 um, and this one is in uh, widescreen if I recall correctly. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, the Bersonian comparison makes sense to me, but the as you're saying, the way that she parcels out narrative information is is really unusual and I, I struggle to like think of a, in a like a comparable uh, filmmaker in terms of the approach to to narrative i think for me this is the film that i probably most undervalued earlier this year when i saw it before seeing a bunch of other way shittier 2019 movies that make this one just seem so smart and intelligently directed that said, like, so the movie has grown on me a lot, I guess is what I'm saying. But that said, I still think there's something a little bit less charged to me about this one than The Dream Path, which suggests all kinds of stranger readings to me. Like, I, The Dream Path is, is a movie that, like, at times seems to suggest, like, science fiction and time travel. Like, Sean, you're, like insane Claire's camera like theorizing and, like, saying, you know, what would be perfectly applied to something like the dream path like it just open to all of those kinds of like bizarre possibilities people seem to show up like 20 years later looking exactly the same as they did in like an earlier scene uh, like geographies are collapsed between cuts in ways that are like really disorienting and and suggest that people maybe haven't actually like traveled anywhere um, even though they seem to be in different countries like in the narrative um, and this one, I think, as Lawrence was saying, is 
it is actually relatively straightforward narratively if you can piece together the pieces of information that Shanalek is giving you in just very little small uh, chunks throughout the film. And I think partly the reason that I didn't respond to it as strongly is because at, at the end of the film, it is very clear to me what it's sort of about and what it's doing. And there aren't these like multifarious readings and all these strange valences. But I do think that also gives the movie a kind of like emotion that is not present in any of the other Shaunalek films that I've seen, which feel quite cold and remote. And this one definitely doesn't feel that way. If you can get on its very particular wavelength, it is focused on this family and um, somewhat actually like Amanda in some ways, like it's dealing with the aftermath of like a loss and this kind of like absence structures the film. And there are like moments where the mother of these children like has these kind of emotional outbursts of like yelling at her kids out of frustration uh, that I think are potentially like quite moving for a viewer that is able to see past uh, the kind of strange information or the strange way that, that Shauna like uh, handles the, the information of the narrative and to her emotional interests, which are just more naked here than they are on anything else that I've seen by her. So I don't know, it's a movie that I do want to go back and, and see again. I wish I had a chance to see it in a theater again, because I think it would probably benefit from, uh, from being kind of forced uh, to not have any distractions while watching it. So you can really uh, like focus on the rhythm of how she's um, dealing with this, this narrative. But Yeah. I think the emotions here are like definitely more direct than like in, I've seen maybe three of her movies now. So Marseille, uh, the dream path and this one. And so there's like, there's a one particular scene um, that like sees the, the mother go to it's set to a cover of Bowie's Let's Dance by M. Ward and you see the mother go to this place uh you later learn it's a cemetery and she sort of is by the gravestone of what we later learn is her husband but at this point you don't know that you just you just know the father is somehow not there for some reason she sort of lays down by um a gravestone and I think a little bird that's in the poster actually like runs by and then you get this like astonishing cut to um like a very brightly lit uh hospital room where she and her two children are doing a dance um in front of a hospital bed but at that point you don't know who the man is um but in retrospect you will like the man is the the husband who dies and uh, the husband is actually a theater director and one thing i didn't mention is that throughout the movie um, the son is performing, like, is, is rehearsing um, Hamlet with uh, other school, school children his age. And um, the, the text that they actually used was based on the text of Sean Alec's, um husband who translated it, but the husband is also now dead. So I, I think it gives the movie a directness that... Um, like it just sort of explains the movie's directness, but also it's sort of greater emotional weight in comparison to her previous films. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> that was, uh, it played after I left the festival and I think I, we have like a screener somewhere, but I did not get around to watching it. I don't know. Um, 
but it sounded good. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, there's actually a, a, a centerpiece scene that I think you'd quite like, just because it plays sort of like a variation of uh, almost like a Hong movie, because you know how in the Hong movies, there's always like a, I don't know, uh, a male character who like accosts someone and like goes on and rambles. And here, oh, yeah. <laughs> and here the, it's, it's actually the mother. She attends a screening of a, a film earlier on in the movie. Um, she leaves because she has to deal with something with her children. But later we see her run into the director on the street and she basically goes on this like 15 minute rant um, to, to this director about his movie, which she didn't finish. And he, at one point he actually says like, oh, maybe you should finish the movie. Um, but, but, but basically it's like, it, it's sort of like the way the, the whole conversation, or it's not really conversation, the whole like um, monologue is pitched is almost like, it, it's almost pitched at the audience because mm. they're talk she's talking about like ideas about acting um ideas about like theater and like artifice and um well and, like trauma specifically isn't she sort of like haranguing him about the way that the movie that he made deals with like trauma or, so or something to that effect yeah it's, it's like, like putting um putting actors next to someone who's actually dying in his movie i think and so like the like like having basically having actors interact with someone who's actually dying, like the whole ethical, um, I don't know, like basically she has she has a very big problem with that, and that's sort of where her um, her monologue stems from. And like mm -hmm. you can imagine, like Shanalek having worked through these ideas herself. Like I don't think it's like a sort of a one to one thing, but uh, it, it's it's quite an interesting scene, especially structurally where it happens, and because of how. There's nothing else quite like like in the movie quite like it because the acting in general is far more um, not like stilted, but like, I guess, Bersonian, for lack of a better word, sometimes. Hmm. Well, and now that I know that the dream path is like Claire's camera, I'm going to have to go and, <laughs> and watch that. The shared well. universe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, I guess it's my turn to pick a movie. Uh, this was a really weird festival for me, and I don't know if it's just me. This is like the 10th if I've been to or the 11th. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but it was really kind of up and down for a while. And then there was a lot of like three and a half star movies. Like, you know, that was fine. But I was, yeah, I wasn't really all that excited about anything that I saw at the festival up until the very end. And like the last three movies I saw kind of saved the festival for me. And, and one of them was Amanda. And but the first was uh, was Dance Elite's 14, uh, which I guess is the one I want to talk about, uh, even though Evan had this great interview with with Dan uh, on the website that everyone who's listening to this should probably just stop and, and go read Evan's interview because it's really cool. Uh, and. I don't know what uh, you guys talk a lot about. And, you know, I, I've known of Dance Elite for, for a very long time as a film critic. I've had some, like, minor interactions with him, but I wouldn't call myself a, a salitist like a lot of uh, <laughs> you, uh, you younger critics might be. Um, I, I don't know that I've ever actually read his website, and I don't really understand the, the point of the color coding ranking system. <laughs> Uh, 
and this was this was also the first of of his movies that I've seen. Like uh, the previous one, uh, I remember getting a lot of buzz. Uh, that was the unspeakable act, and I remember just thinking that there was no way that that would be a movie that I would like. Uh, so I was a little I was a little nervous going to see fourteen, also not knowing anything about it other than the fact that Dan had directed it. But I I really loved it. Uh, in for a lot of the same reasons that I loved Amanda. And I, the two are interesting. They also kind of end similarly, I think, with a, a, a long uh, gestating emotional outburst by a child or sparked by a child. Uh, but what the movie is, is basically the, I don't know what, how many years does it cover? 15 20 years well I, yes i don't think it's quite years. that long although it's in it's in, it's like intentionally kind of yeah it's, it's clear in the it, movie yeah it, it's it's a very long relationship between between two women and when when the film starts they are they are like in their early 20s and when it ends they're probably in their 30s and one of them has become a mom and has settled down and the the interactions are are typical one is is like the responsible friend and the other is kind of is the the makes bad decisions friend but they stick together and support each other and he just kind of skips around through time with like little glimpses in the relationship and and very slowly we follow the relationship through like the expected kind of comic beats and uh getting more and more dark as as the one friend's uh uh mental state kind of collapses in addiction and, and depression uh but you just kind of see the way two people grow apart with time which is not something I know that I've seen in a lot of films. Like I see a lot of films about friendship, but I don't see a lot of films about just people remaining friends, but not seeing each other anymore. And just the sense of, of the way time passes over a decade, over more than a decade, uh, was, was just really moving to me aside from, you know, like the film theory things about the way that he just cuts different scenes together and doesn't give you any any signposting of how much time has elapsed between the spaces for whatever reason. Or the thing I, I thought was really interesting um, that he mentioned, I think he mentioned in the interview, I know he did in the Q&A, uh, which is that he never conceived of any any backstory for any of the characters, any psychology other than what is on the screen. Like he he did not like give himself any information that the audience doesn't also have for the characters, which is an interesting approach to making film. And I think it, it works really well in making this kind of open-ended, lifelike movie. There's also got like this great midpoint uh, shot which I think you highlighted in the interview, Evan. That's what is it? Four minutes long of a train yeah. station. Uh, that is is such an aesthetic break with the whole rest of the style of the film. But it's nice. It's like a little like pause to rest and reflect on what has happened and and where we might be going, which is is something we get out of life. I I don't know. I I I really loved it and it really kind of saved the festival for me. And leading from that to Amanda was was just fantastic. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, I am a fan of uh, 14. I think I'm slightly unsure still, even after uh, talking to to Dan uh, about the ending of the film and whether or not the kind of burst of emotion that happens works for me. It's a movie that I suspect, like Amanda, it may really like kind of gut me on a second viewing when I understand all of the effort that he's taking along the way to kind of get us there. Um, but the movie is very restrained uh, otherwise. And I do find the the final scene, or did find anyways, the final scene a, a little bit hard to uh, contextualize in, uh, I think, the rest of the film when I watched it. But pretty much everything up until that point, I was having a similar reaction, I think, that you did, Sean, where I was just really moved by uh, the way that the time passes um, and just like the very specific, like young 20 something millennial detail of the film. Like I kind mm-hmm. of asked Dan a little bit about that, um, which we, he, we didn't really get into too much, but like, I think he seems to understand like the kinds of environments these people occupy. Like he understands, uh, like what their interactions would be like and what the kind of like boundaries are in a way of like of their interactions at like different stages of their life, which I think kind of like you're saying, Sean is not something you see that often. Like the movie understands, I think at each interaction that they have sort of like very specifically what they are at that point in time, like comfortable revealing to each other about themselves. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I found that quite, uh, quite interesting. I, I think it's, it, it's possible that I am more tolerant of, the the emotional outbursts in this film in Amanda than 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 maybe you and Lawrence were because I I spend every day with a very emotional little girl, uh, <laughs> so it just it 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 plays as very natural to me like it just mm-hmm. that's just how kids are. But, well, I guess here like the oh sorry, no go ahead, no go ahead. Well, I guess here the strangeness a bit for me like I I like the film a fair amount as well. Um, but as Evan was saying, I think the final scene in the, well, I don't know if we should give away the movie, but um, the scene in the funeral home um, with the, with the girl, with, with the little girl, like the, the outburst um, is on the part of the mother. Well, like the, the little girl is the catalyst for it, but it's really right. the mother who like sort of breaks down and does her. Right, um, she's like she's I, trying to. I could have she's saved trying her. To, she's trying to explain something to the girl, and that and it brings up the emotions in her. Yeah. So in Amanda, I think I'm more willing to accept it because <laughs> it's more tethered to this young girl. Here, it feels a little bit, um, not like mannered exactly, but um, it it feels a bit more like a moment. Whereas, like in in the previous. In every other scene in the movie, I I never really feel like it's building to like a moment, um, but I think that's also partly my response to like the staging, the whole staging of the funerals, funeral home scene, which um, like the acting in it of like the extras gets a bit more artificial, like the lighting is a bit stranger, and so I I do think like having this burst of emotion like works for me conceptually, but. It just didn't quite get me there, like the first time I saw it. I mean, I could very well like turn around on it when I see it again, but that was yeah. my experience. 
it's it's also i mean for me it it is the case that like having kids just makes you more emotional <laughs> uh definitely like, yeah i think because I'll, you see a lot of things through their eyes and they are very emotional mm -hmm. uh it, you get this weird double consciousness so like every emotion is like your own normal emotion and then what your kid is thinking and then you're emotional about what your kid is thinking like it's, just, yeah. it's <laughs> right. like the spiraling thing that just yeah <laughs> plus you know like the years of 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 no sleep and stress and fear <laughs> just kind and of break your brain getting closer to mortality every day too <laughs> yeah yeah it's a constant reminder that you're going mm -hmm. to be replaced yeah. very soon <laughs> <laughs> And, and and also I uh, I don't know I I might just be old I think I think it's it's a movie about young people but I think it it plays to me for old people who have grown away from their friends in in their twenties uh, it seems much more resonant on that level to me but that may just be because I am in my forties and not my twenties. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I think there's maybe something to that. Like, I, I think somewhat as Lawrence was saying, we talked about this a little bit, uh, actually, I think while we were at Biff, like the response that the Vincent Lacoste character has at the end of Amanda, maybe it makes more sense to me as someone who does not have children and spend time around them for any extended duration by choice. Um, like, he's sort of puzzled at Amanda's tears, I think, at the end of that film and doesn't, like, he doesn't quite understand, I think, the depth of her reckoning at that particular moment and right. there's something very very touching to me about her as this child like having this reaction and his almost like obliviousness to it and that's very much not what's happening in 14 because for the reasons i think you're saying like the tally medell character is like very clearly attuned to her child's emotions and and the, like transference happens in a way that maybe just isn't like it just doesn't make as much kind of emotional sense to me personally for those reasons. I, I could buy that. Yeah, it's all, it's also the case in that. I'm more the aloof, the aloof twenty something who's like, why is this child crying? I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> it, it, it's it, it's also the case in in Amanda that that Lacoste has spent you know the majority of the movie weeks. I'm not sure a couple months passes in the course of the movie, uh, being very emotional himself and, and dealing with and sorting through those emotions so that by the time he gets to Wimbledon, he's not exactly over it, but he's just kind of dealt with his big outbursts, whereas the the girl has has repressed them. She's never really openly like broken down in that way, in the way that he did. Uh, so because he's young he's just assuming that she has just processed it so when she does break down it takes him a while to remember exactly what could make, be making her so emotional because he's kind of moved on whereas he doesn't understand the way that kids can repress things and, and, and then have them come out in unexpected ways I think <laughs> yeah that sounds right to me yeah. alright so Round two, Evan, what is the second film that you saw that played at VIF? Uh, okay, so the second film that I'm going with uh, as a Seattle Screen Scene contributor, friend of the show, <laughs> former Francis Farmer guest, uh, Ryan Swen said, may have cured me of my uh, Romanian new wave uh, face blindness, <laughs> uh, which is Cornelio Porimboyu's The Whistlers. And I say that because 
as and I mean this entirely seriously, like, I cannot keep these people apart. Like I don't understand <laughs> who made which of these Romanian New Wave movies. They I swear they're all the same person that just have like one pen name. But I think because I liked the Whistlers so much, quite against my own expectations, I will be forced to now actually remember which films Corneliu Poramboyu uh, made versus Puyu and whoever the other people are. Poramboyu uh, did The Treasure and Police Adjective. <coughs> Poramboyu did. John. Yeah, mm. Poramboyu did. <laughs> uh, yeah. And The Whistlers is a movie that I didn't really, as I sort of imply, like expect to be all that taken with um, because I've never really been particularly on the uh, Romanian new wave kind of wavelength. And I think part of the reason that I, I did take to it is that it's kind of a different thing in some ways than a lot of those other films. It's very much a small scale policier. Uh, and I actually think this year has been kind of an interesting year for these like auteur figures making kind of weirdo little policiers like porn boy you made this film uh there's the deflation film oh mercy uh, that played at vif uh, which i think would fit in that category and christian petzel made the third in a series of these little like tv uh policiers that he's been making that, that's quite interesting uh and i think i just kind of respond to this kind of thing like i, I like crime fiction i like uh like the auteur like interest kind of having to be funneled through this generic template, uh, which is not to say that the Whistlers doesn't include many of Poramboyu's interests and idiosyncrasies. Like it's very much a film about language, which is something that he's, I think, clearly interested in. The premise of the film is that uh, this police officer who's sort of involved in uh, sort of like I don't know, like corrupt business deals uh, back in Romania goes to uh, an island, uh, in, like one of the islands in the Canaries, and uh, learns this like whistling language that I think is a real language that exists on on the island uh, in order to be able to like communicate and get past like the surveillance teams that are watching him um, by sort of using these like bird call whistling sounds. Um, and the whole movie just kind of like operates on the one hand, like on one hand, as a very straightforward crime movie about this this cop who's sort of increasingly crooked, that's broken up into like a series of of um, sequences that are sort of like delineated by uh, like title cards. So it jumps a little bit back and forward in time, but is a pretty straight police thing. But then on top of it, you have this kind of like weird sense of humor and interest in the way in which people communicate. Uh, via this like whistling language and it's not a movie I think has like a whole lot happening beyond the kind of surface pleasures for me but I found the surface pleasures surprisingly pleasurable for a Romanian new wave film <laughs> and it's it, you know like a lot of people I think talk about the Romanian new wave films as being these kind of comedies and I guess I've never really gotten really a sense of humor from the other films like I can kind of like squint and see it but actually just was like quite delighted by some of the turns in this and I think the the performance uh by um uh Vlad Ivanov I think uh who is the lead in uh police adjective or not the lead in police adjective but he's he's in police adjective uh as well uh is quite good and like I think exhibits this kind of like comic timing that finally started to uh, allow me to kind of understand i think where point boy is like humor lies in these films um 
so anyways, not a movie I can make like a grand case for, but I had a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I I I think it's fine as well. Surface pleasures, I think, is 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 right. It's a, it's a very surface pleasure kind of movie. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I didn't I didn't get much else out of it though. Is it is it akin to I saw the treasure? I haven't seen a police adjective. I saw the treasure the like four years ago or whatever. What is is it? Does it have a similar sort of? I mean, the, I remember that it's, one being quite funny. Not, not quite. I, I mean, I, I wrote about the Whistlers, and so I have lots of thoughts of on <laughs> Porum Boyu in general. Uh-huh. Um, and I guess like the treasure is sort of it has one joke and it plays it. Um, right. <laughs> sort of for the length of it and sort of yeah. it, it kind of starts out funny and then it like goes on so long that it doesn't become funny and then it sort of wraps around and becomes funny again. Uh, right. Um, the Whistlers, Evan would probably disagree with this, but I think it has it has it's just one move and it's one move is that it's Porum Boyu making like as he says a straightforward policier. Oh, I don't and, I don't disagree with that at all. <laughs> okay. Well, I like I, I think that is the joke and I think it's sort of the one thing that he's doing in the movie and I guess I don't think he does the policier particularly well and so all you're left with is like this sort of signaling like he signals his interest in language he signals his interest in like I don't know the bureaucracy of like this police force he signals his interest in like like in the genre or whatever and he never really takes it for me to a place where he's actually like subverting or transforming Everything is sort of just like there, and it it it's kind of it, it, in the end it kind of irritated me. I, I saw it twice just because I had to write about it, but <laughs> yeah, I don't think there's you know very much there. I guess one yeah. thing I will say is that I mean this is more of like an Easter egg thing. I guess it doesn't really affect the movie that much, but like uh, police adjective is was like released in two thousand nine, and in that movie Vladinov, Vlad Ivanov plays like a police chief in this sort of backwater town and he and the case in that movie is about um, a teenager who is dealing weed to his two friends it's like a very minor case and so the main character of that movie goes into like a crisis of conscience about like I don't want to ruin this kid's life for just like weed um, and it's revealed here that basically the the criminal contact of Vlad Ivanov is presumably like his um, case file corresponds exactly to that teenager's case file. So he was caught dealing weed as a kid. He was sent to prison. He ratted on his brother. His brother then committed suicide. And it's supposed to be the same kid. And um, I guess there's you could draw something from that as well. Um, I don't know. There's a lot in the movie that I think you can draw like interest from, but I don't really think he does anything to like actually make it interesting. It's my. I mean, I don't really disagree with that characterization, aside from the fact that like just like a well, what I think is otherwise like a well-executed like policier with just some like weirdo gloss on top of it, like is a perfectly acceptable way to spend like 90 minutes for me. Like if every 
like you know moderately talented filmmaker just like stop what they were doing right now and just went and made like a pretty straightforward policier like i think i would have liked a lot more movies this year so. <laughs> yeah well, they I wouldn't didn't... be uh api chatpong imitators so that would be better. <laughs> right where's our api chatpong policier that... Yeah. <laughs> that would be yeah yeah for me uh it didn't it didn't Ultimately, like I like, I would, I was enjoying it for for just those reasons for most of it, but it never really kind of paid off. It just kind of fizzled out. Like I think for did like, you, did either of you watch through the the end credits and notice what happens at the very last shot? I don't remember. Oh, I don't think so. Probably. But what happens? Oh, maybe. interesting. Well, okay. So the, I, what you're saying about how it doesn't pay off is interesting in that way. I mean, not that I think this is like that it radically changes the movie or like would, would make you think there's anything more going on here. But again, just kind of like, I, I don't know, I find it quite funny. Like it, it ends in that they're in Singapore, right? At the end. Yeah. yeah. And th they're in this like light, weird, like light park. The gardens thing. at the gardens at the bay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had never seen it before, but yeah, it's just like a giant uh, like park with all these uh, like light lit up structures and there's like I don't know these like weird like large like huge like mushroom looking things that are there's like, like a light show to classical music or something right right yeah and he meets the the sort of femme fatale esque character there uh, and the implication is I think that they've like reunited after all of this uh, kind of like double crossing that's happened in the film. And at the after the credits roll through the very last shot, uh, there's like a really faint sound of a gunshot going off and like a little flash that you can barely see uh, like in the distance because it's in that long shot after you're watching this light show and you like for just like half a second before it cuts to black, like hear a bunch of people screaming, um, which again, I, it doesn't add anything to the movie, but like it's just like one last little like fill up that like there's going to be one other little like double cross at the very end of this film, like buried in there and kind of like what you're describing with the, the connection to police adjective, like it's almost just like a little Easter egg, like it's just dropped in there because porn boy, you found it funny, I think to, to have this little bit about Ivanov's character presumably getting murdered by this femme fatale at like the very last <laughs> second of this film after the credits. But again, I just, I found it totally amusing. Oh, yeah, I, <laughs> See, I watched I just, the credits twice, but I haven't, I, I guess I never actually I got had, to the very end. I, I was trying to, to write down the watch, music. But, I had sorry, to go I, back and, and watch it like one more time to confirm that it happened, but it definitely does. So anyways. I, th I think I, I think I saw that and I, that just kind of annoys me. <laughs> I mean, in other contexts, it might annoy me too, but I don't know. I was. I, was I, I, I don't know. For for like auteur uh, policiers that played at Fifth, I I would much prefer uh, uh, Wild Goose Lake, which which I wrote about. Oh, I think that's so, a better movie. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Melissa, you're up. Okay. Um. <clears throat> well, I guess. Um, this this pick feels a little plebeian at this point because of your your like deep dives and all you guys well, we, are taking. We, we got we got to talk about it. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, it is. It, it, is like it won't be a consensus pick, I suspect. Okay. It's, right. Well, it's, it's going to open, and we need something to link to on the website that says discuss <laughs> it because exactly. I don't think any of us want to actually review it. So something that's not wet season. Yeah. Our, um, our podcast. <laughs> right. Wait for the end. You will hear a review of Parasite. Um, yes. Yeah, so 
parasite. I mean, and I think actually it maybe it's appropriate to talk about being kind of plebeian because this does feel like a, a blockbuster um, movie in many ways. I mean, that's certainly how the crowd at VIF took it. I mean, yeah. they were positively raucous the whole way through with in kind of some unsettling, <laughs> unsettling ways, maybe. Um, <clears throat> really unpleasant. <laughs> yeah, it was actually. It was. Um, it was a strange experience. Um, and I, I guess I don't really know. Probably, um, I don't know how much we need to talk about the plot. But I think one thing that I keep coming back to with this film is um, just simply feeling like you're kind of being in the hands of this master filmmaker from from the beginning, who is going to give you something to, I guess. Um, well, enjoy, I guess, is maybe the wrong term for it. But just the opening shot, I loved so much that it encompasses, I think, so much of what the film is about. And it's this really kind of obvious shot. But I sort of love that about Bong Joon-ho, the the obviousness um, about what he's doing. But again, the kind of the textural textual uh, detail. So it, it opens with this um, socks hanging up to dry. Um, in front of this dirty basement window where you're where a sort of view is out into the street um, where the street is kind of above eye level and so you're sort of peering at life through these dirty socks through a dirty window onto this street where it's life just at the bottom of the city where you ultimately see drunk guy a drunk guy coming to piss in a corner and where there's no wi-fi and everything smells like damp mildewed socks and it, it's just like a kind of wonderful image to begin the 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 movie with and so of course that it, it goes on with the kind of the main family of the story is this family of literally basement dwellers living at the bottom of the city and the basement is so low that their toilet has to be on a raised platform presumably so the plumbing will work and the water will actually flow downward um and they're just they're dwelling at the bottom of everything they're out of work kind of barred from a vacation uh, from access to jobs and then the main family of course is contrasted with this super wealthy family who lives literally at the top of the city in this kind of hanging garden of Babylon um, where everything's modern and clean and glassed in and surrounded by these beautiful gardens and, and high walls. Um, and then the plot kicks in when one of the members of the family, the basement dwelling family gets a job as a tutor for the teenage girl of the rich family, even though he's not qualified, but he gets in on the word of a friend. And then it's kind of by word of mouth that the rest of the family gets in and I and I guess the film is it it it, it seems like a um uh, thematically very similar to um the last couple of films that Bong Joon-ho has made in terms of class and wealth and and the way that 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 works um and uh, one of the other things that I loved about the, the film and the way that he um operates is that it he has an interest he doesn't has has an interest really in completely dehumanizing the wealthy family or glamorizing the poor family, but these are just kind of merely human, complicit, sort of in the ways and the structures in which they exist. Um, the wealthy are complicit in the structures that maintain them. They are kind of snobs, but they also have this kind of kindness about them in some ways, and you like them, but they're also sort of, they're oblivious and petty and closed off to reality. And 
one of the other visuals that comes back to me besides the opening visual is the this kind of um, this scene maybe two thirds of the way through where there's this flood and the basement family who's been at the top of the city is now having to go kind of down, down, down all these stairs. And there are these um, <clears throat> kind of long shots of you, you see the, the stairs and then kind of closer shots of the water flowing down and everything's going down to their basement. And there's this sort of the sense of inevitability of the whole thing of that, the, the gravity and the whole architecture and structure of the city is organized around these stairs and the upstairs and downstairs. And it's a super obvious metaphor, but the visual of it is so striking and the sense of the water only flowing from one, one direction. And then <laughs> the image of that toilet again, trying to rise a little bit above the, the basement. Um, yeah, I, I think I, that's some, that's a lot of what I, loved about it. And I, and I just, I love to, of course, um, everyone talks about this with Wong Jun ho but I love the way that he bounces between comedy and shock and horror and melodrama and emotion. Um, and he just kind of puts it out there for you. And I guess our audience thought it was all just funny, <laughs> but, um, there are moments of genuine, just complete devastation as well that I am just always drawn to with with his movies I don't think that this everyone seems to love Parasite I don't know I don't think it's my favorite Bong Joon-ho I actually even might like something like Oakshaw a little bit better um but I did this was maybe kind of well this was definitely the one that I liked the most out of the the, the films that I saw so I assume you guys all saw this one too I did yeah <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, well, I guess. Well, I guess. Um, you, you mentioned that it take sort of it away, like a blockbuster for you, and um, I mean, it's interesting because someone mentioned on Twitter earlier today that in Korea, it like Bong Joon Ho is seen as more of like a a big budget filmmaker, and mm. I mean, this movie very much plays like one. Although not in the way that I think I really respond to very much. Um, I don't know. Um, if we're talking Bong Joon-ho, I think he's a director that I sort of used to like. Like, I liked Snowpiercer a lot when I saw it. Um, and then I got to Okja, and I kind of kind of hated that. And this one I sort <laughs> of don't like. And... Um, like, I like Memories of Murder, and I think... I think, I mean, not to uh, make it such a, like a clear divide, but I do think like as Bong Joon-ho's career has gone on, I do think he's gotten like progressively less interested in like just human behavior as such. Like th this movie just feels too much like a closed system to me. It's like sort of like a Rube Goldberg contraption for his like thematic interests, which at this mm. point aren't, all that interesting to me and sort of everything that he's doing like his direction is like like masterful in all the ways that people describe um but it's sort of masterful to me in a way that i find actually kind of suffocating because everything is sort of like amplified like towards this one thing and i, I didn't actually watch the film in a theater and maybe that's i mean accounts for some of my like uh dissatisfaction with it but i watched it at home and at 
one point I actually had to pause the movie to give myself like a break because I felt like I was being smothered. Mm. Um, sorry, that sounds super harsh. Like I think there are good things about it. Like I, I, um, I like the ending um, just because it's a bit of a change of pace in terms of it lets the emotion sort of like bubble up a little bit. It sort of lets these, it, like the, I mean, we don't need to get into the details of the plot, but the son and the father, like you actually get a sense of their relationship. Whereas in the rest of the movie, I feel like you don't, you don't really get a sense of how this family interacts with each other beyond what is needed for the plot, basically. Um, yeah, I can I can understand I can see that, and I think something certainly something like Memories of Murder has um, a more not I don't know if expansive is the right word, but it doesn't feel as you're saying so tightly constructed. Oh, I, I think expansive is exactly is exactly right. I mean, I think I, I have some I like the movie a little bit more than I, I think maybe Lawrence does. Like it is like fun enough for me, but I really do miss the like specificity of of something like Memories of Murder, where you really get a sense of this, like, town and just, like, mm -hmm. all of this, like, Korean culture and these people, like, what their lives are like, uh, sort of moving organically throughout the film. And there is a way, as Lauren said, this one's, like, a closed system. Like, you could kind of set this movie, like, on a moon colony, like, to a certain extent. And, like, I don't know that it would really, like, change the text of the film significantly. Like, the fact that it's, like... Korean just seems because that's where you know Bong Joon Ho is from and where they made the film, which is which is fine. Like the movie doesn't have to explicate anything particular about Korean life or Korean you know economic relations or anything like that. But it just it does feel like there's maybe something that the movie is not accessing that it, it seems like the kinds of ideas that Bong wants to play with would probably benefit from him actually accessing that stuff and playing with a world that feels more fully realized in like actual terms because he does do a very good job of this kind of like world building thing uh which you see in something like Snowpiercer and I think he's doing it here even though this is ostensibly set in a more like realistic environment like he he does a very good job of giving you all of these these kinds of rules for how this world operates and that's a kind of filmmaking that I do often respond to um but uh, there's just I don't know there's something about maybe it's the intersection of his his thematic interests and his aesthetic ones where it's just everything is so tight like there isn't I think like the complaint that I had after watching this was like it's a movie that doesn't require me to view it like or to be it doesn't require a viewer like it, it just sort of operates um as a as Lawrence said as a closed system but yeah and I think Snowpiercer, Okja and Parasite all have that quality that you're that you're talking about even something like the host feels more expansive i think than, mm -hmm. than mm -hmm. these last these last three yeah and i think maybe the reason snowpiercer like worked for me at the time and i mean i'm hopeful that if i ever went back to it that it would still work for me is that like the the structure of that film like the way it operates it's so outlandish and it's so like like it, it lays out it's the skeleton of its like um of what it's doing so baldly that it almost doesn't matter that it's only doing this one thing because it it's so, so outlandish and just like purely fun whereas here i maybe it's the setting maybe it's like 
like the faint whiff of moralizing that I kind of get from it, but I, it, yeah, it just feels a little more oppressive here. And I guess you could argue that that's the point, but I don't know. I, I'm going to say that I, I agree with all of you. <laughs> uh, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I think that Bong makes these very insular movies that don't require you as an audience member. And I think he's, he's always kind of worked that way. Like I don't, I watched Memories of Murder for the first time and I, and I rewatched the host just like a, a week or two before going to VIF. And I don't really see uh, much of a difference in terms of like specificity to Korean society or, or openness of scenario or, or anything in that as qualitatively different from what he's doing in, in Snowpiercer or, or Parasite. I, I think, uh, I mean, Evan, you described him as like a, a comic book filmmaker in, in your mm -hmm. write up on this. And I think that's that's what he is. And I think he's really good at it. And I think it's it's a it's a it's a limited style of filmmaking, but it's one that, uh, you know, he he reminds me, you know, it, it's feels cheap to compare him to other Korean filmmakers like like Park Chan-wook or, or Kim Ji-won, but they all kind of make these same kinds of movies. And I think he, he does it better than his peers. Like, I, I prefer him. But I, I, I don't think this is any more or less closed than something like The Handmaiden or Old Boy or no. The Good, The Mad, and The Weird or something mm. like that. All of which are, are movies that, that I like. But... Yeah, and I think I mean I I, I think comic book feel is a, is a really good way of describing it, and I and I think like with something like Old Boy, I feel no emotion really what whatsoever. Um, but there are moments in Bong's films that often will take me kind of by surprise, and I'm and I'm suddenly accessing some kind of emotion, and I don't know how he really does that because. The films often do have this insular comic book feel mm -hmm. that you're talking about, and I don't, well, I don't I, know I, if it's. I think his ahead. movies are smarter than than Park's movies. I think he's just smarter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, and I, I agree about the, that the emotionality of the film. I mean, I think it sounds like we're all sort of in agreement about maybe really liking the last sort of passage of the film. Which makes it all mm -hmm. the weirder to me. The audience was, a, it sounds like, like laughing the whole time <laughs> during it that. It was, because, yeah, yeah, it was so weird. Strange. Because yeah, it, it that was, is where the movie is most engaging to me, and it is precisely because it has this like mournful quality that I suddenly felt sort of that I was pricked up and and paying attention more. Um, mm -hmm. It was a crowd that was really not attuned to tonal shifts. Yeah. So as the movie starts off, as kind of like a, a goofy con artist caper film that's that's kind of funny and a little dark but still funny uh for the first half hour or so as it shifts into its various other uh kinds of of plot that it's going through the audience didn't shift with it they just stayed in the same goofy caper film mode mm -hmm. which made which only made like the horrible things that happened in the middle of the film uh, more horrifying for me to hear them laughing. Right, exactly. 
Yeah, I think that's always the danger the with like festival audiences. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But I mean, I don't know. I I I like this movie. I don't. I'm not blown away by it. I think it is it is good, but overhyped. And yeah. I'm yeah. I I just I'm I'm so just flabbergasted that it won the Palm d'Or. Like it's <laughs> it's the most surprising thing about it to me is is the way the the can audience seemed to love it so much, and I don't really understand why it goes against everything I thought I knew about can. Is it that surprising though? I guess like actually it like is, when it I was really is. Hmm. I don't know. After I watched the movie, I, I actually made a point of writing down in my notes it's that, well, after seeing it, it wasn't actually that surprising to me that it won because, I don't know, it's a bit of a white elephant movie, isn't it? I like in, They don't go for genre films and it is a it's a, a it's an Asian tone mixing genre film. The kind of thing that like Hong Kong and, and Korea have been putting out for years and, and Japan and they never get any recognition at, at Cannes. I mean, juries are notoriously like, I don't know, like depending on what jury you get, the, the, the palm will be a wildly different thing. But it's not like they haven't programmed like The Handmaiden or The Host or. Yeah, but they, didn't, they don't win the palm door. Like shoplifters wins the Palm d'Or, <laughs> which sure. you know has has you know kind of a similar main set of characters and deals with it in you know your traditional international art house festival circuit style, and that's the kind of movie that wins at Cannes. Like they they gave Ken Loach two Palm d'Ors in the last fifteen years. Like <laughs> he also well... makes movies about class, but they're not like this. Well, maybe it is because this movie is so obviously about class and they, the, um, the can audiences are interested in I guess. That. I mean, I, I take it as like a hopeful sign. Like even if it's yeah. not my favorite movie to have played at Cannes this year, like I, I, am, I am glad that it won. Not in, in the same way that I was glad that when Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives, won because that w- was like a... A moment of like uh, recognition for a movement in in Asian cinema that had been going for a long time and hadn't been recognized at at Cannes, but this is something kind of similar in that Korea, Korea, Japan, and, and China have been turning out these kinds of movies for a very long time. And yeah, the best they get is like a, a best director prize for like a Touch of Sin or uh, or that that would just want screenplay, didn't it? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's wild to me the the reception to this movie. You know, I can and in audiences and in film critics are so excited about this movie and without even having seen it yet. And I am I'm really curious as to why. I don't I don't quite get it. Well, they also liked Joker this year too. <laughs> comic comic book theme at Cannes. Uh, yeah. That's that's a, that's a whole other <laughs> Sorry. festival. <laughs> Bring it up. Well, I mean, it's oh. sort of part of the like. I think people when people see a genre movie by like an auteur or who they perceive to be an auteur, it's like something to get behind, I suppose. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the Cannes movies this year, like were fairly genre heavy. Like Jessica Hausner had Little Joe, which was also at VIF, which was her like sort of sci-fi body snatchers movie. 
there was Poromboya doing his policier. There was, um, the, I don't know. I remember there was like, like Wild Goose know, Lake. Yeah. Wild Goose Lake. There was, it was the a fairly genre heavy, I thought. Yeah, but, but none the of the Trader is a gangster movie. Like, but none of those won awards, right? Mm-hmm. No, but I just mean that, like, in general, it's not that unusual for. Sure, like, like I, I, I can understand why it would play can, although I, I do think it's odd, but uh, a little bit odd that it would be in like the main official competition. But yeah, I mean, he he's been anointed by the international festival circuit as like one of us, so his movies play in can. Didn't Oakshire well, have been can one year? Mm, it may have. I think yeah. it may have did. Yeah. Well, Baccarat was also there. Yeah, background, yeah. I mean, I think there's also just something to be said for the fact that Bong is, like, working in this kind of, like, highly competent, air quotes, like, kind of style that I think Mm -hmm. was once the purview of, like, American popular cinema and no longer is for a number of of reasons. Uh, And so I think part of the excitement is a little bit just, like, people getting a taste of what was once like not that uncommon a flavor, which is like an actually like competent artist making a movie that is for a large audience, like with a significant budget and like evidencing his competence at every moment in the film. And Mm -hmm. like, it's, it's kind of sad that that's not like something that you can reliably go to the movies every weekend and experience, but Unfortunately, that is the world that we now live in. And I guess I can kind of understand why that feels like an exciting thing mm-hmm. in 2019 when I think if one looks at Parasite, I think through a different end of the telescope, like that maybe doesn't seem like quite so much an achievement, but I don't know. Yeah. there's a paucity yeah. of these kinds of things now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, meant, you mentioned Baccarat. I think that's a great, a great point of comparison for a film that is much more confrontational and aggressive in in the the genre tone it it adopts uh did that win an award or did it just get a bunch uh, of hype it can i don't think it won any awards i don't think it won no yeah i think um atlantics won something portrait of lady on fire won right something uh, did synonyms win anything uh, that was, it, at, was berlin. it berlin the, that was at berlin the top prize at berlin yeah ah yeah. okay um, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I, we we should stop talking about other festivals. <laughs> We're turning into Ryan's podcast. Let's. let's <laughs> uh, Lawrence, what is the movie you saw? Uh, so I guess I was gonna talk about Young Ahmed, but maybe we should. Hmm. Should I talk another about another movie? Yeah, that, yeah maybe. Uh, that's another one. Did all of us see it? Yeah. Saw. yeah, I saw oh, yeah, it. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Young Ahmed just because I guess we all saw it and it is, oh, it won, I think it, it won did win Best, Best Director. Director. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, not that the awards are everything, but um, <laughs> Young Ahmed is, well, I think the basic setup of the movie is fairly simple. It's that um, there's a young Muslim boy who is essentially radicalized by an imam and he tries to kill his teacher um i believe and after that he's sent to a juvenile like detention center or yeah juvenile detention center um and it's sort of 
Um, it's the Dardens, so their style is is like one of the most consistent, I think, in world cinema, and one that I actually do quite take to. Like the Dardens, I, I think I've mentioned this to Evan before, are like one of the few directors who I really loved when I first like gone into movies, and who yeah. <laughs> I think I has not only stayed steady, but I think I might admire them even more now, even though I don't think this is one of their best work. I still think it's quite good, but um, I guess what I like about this is that it sort of sets up the question immediately in terms of like, like it starts with him radicalized, which I know is, has been a point of contention for a lot of people, um, given the politics of uh, the Dardens making a movie about a young Muslim boy, but um, it sets up basically the question of him already being radicalized. He does this like decisive action, and the rest of the movie is about whether or not he can be changed, saved, like transformed by the system that he that is meant to like help him. So he's in this juvenile detention detention center, and we see his interactions with. Um, the do they call them guards? I don't I don't think they call them guards, but like the yeah. the, the people running the center, we see them caregiver or something. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 caregivers. They we see them um, sort of like accommodate his um, his prayer time um, when he also has these um, labor uh, job stints at like a farm where he meets a girl and. Um, form some relationship there but I mean basically we see him pass through these different systems and it's sort of a mode that the Dardens have worked in before Um, I compare this a lot to Kid with a Bike which also has um, well I guess this kid isn't unruly in the way that the kid in the Kid with the Bike was but he's like he needs to be reformed somehow Um, and this movie is about whether or not he can he can do that um, there's no like single figure of grace as there is in the kid with the bike, but um, I mean I just really love the Dardenne style. I think in terms of it's like like their camera style is like fairly consistent across their movies, and, and the way that they use that within these almost syllogistic, like rigorous, like rigorously developed scenarios is quite beautiful to me. Um, I don't know where am I going with this? I don't know. Maybe someone else can take it out from here. I mean, I I think it's interesting that you. Well, I guess I don't know if you necessarily meant to characterize it this way, but like that the center that he's at or the juvenile detention facility as like the kind of catalyst for his his change. Because I actually I don't think that the movie really suggests that anything that happens in that facility actually does anything to change him. I think that's another yeah. sort of reading that I, I keep seeing of the film from people who I think take umbrage with its sort of ideological position, which I have a lot of issues with the film, but they're almost entirely unrelated to the milieu and the particulars of this, the presentation of this, you know, young Muslim kid. Um, but in any case, I, I don't think that the movie suggests that anything that happens in the center is what changes him. In fact, at the very end of the film, he goes back to attack his teacher again, right? Yeah. And 
And it's only in the last, very last moment, which replicates the ending of The Kid with the Bike, I think, as you're sort of suggesting that connection, Lawrence, that this moment of grace happens. And it's only when he is, like, on his Mm -hmm. back, like, broken and Mm -hmm. potentially, like, paralyzed for life that he is sort of able to to have this moment of grace. And so I think the the word that's out there that the movie is kind of this apologia or something for this kind of bland, like, you know, liberal, like Belgian bureaucracy doesn't really comport with my experience of the movie. That said, I think the Dardenne's moves are just so, at this point, clear to me that within 10 minutes of the movie, (laughs) like, I understood exactly how this movie was going to end. Like, not necessarily that he would, like, fall from a roof and, like, be paralyzed, but that it was going to be a confrontation with the teacher where he was going to ask for forgiveness, and, like, that's exactly what happens. And I understand why one would be really moved by the Dardenne's doing this kind of thing because I think if you are able to just really click into their moment to moment mechanics, something like that can really play as like a surprise, not even a surprise, but it can like all of a sudden kind of like make this switch on you, which can be very emotional. But because I understand what they do, I think so clearly, I, I just, I have a hard time getting into these kind of, this kind of like narrative thing that you're describing where they have this almost like mechanistic approach to, to plot. The Kid with the Bike is really, I think, the only Dardenne film I really love. And I think it's because it's the one where that final gesture, which is replicated here, actually really caught me off guard. And I kind of remember, like, gasping at the moment uh, when the kid in that film falls from from the tree. Um, and I haven't had an equivalent experience of kind of surprise with the Dardenne's sense, um, which is my, I guess, my primary gripe with, with the film. Yeah, I guess my emphasis here on the the sender wasn't to say that, oh, the sender is what changes him, and therefore, like, it's sort of this apologia for, like, oh, yeah, I didn't think whatever, whatever people are saying. Say. Yeah. Um, I, I, think, I think my emphasis on the sender is that the film really is dealing with the question of change. I don't think it's, it's a matter of the sender doing that. I think it's a matter of his, like, mm-hmm. internal whatever, like, mechanisms. Like, um, like the scene uh, where he actually goes and tries to murder the teacher... Like, because it happens in the stairwell and he's sort of, like, hiding behind it, it sort of reminded me a bit of crime and punishment. And, mm. I mean, I think, like, the difference between that movie and this is that, I mean, not it's not a movie. Well, it was adapted. Like, the difference between <laughs> that and this is that uh, Raskolnikov is, like, he, he's older, he has, like, formed ideas, and you see his, like, mm-hmm. like thoughts and his, like, sort of justifications for everything. Whereas here, like, he's, I don't know how old he is supposed to be, like Ahmed is supposed to be, but he's like a young, unformed boy, right? And he's mm-hmm. like, it's this malleability, this question of like th- these forces coming out him from all these different directions that like he's being pulled in all these different directions and how he responds in any given moment is to me like not unpredictable per se, but it was like definitely open to question. Like um, a lot. There's a lot of emphasis of his relationship with his mother and his sister, who he because he has been radicalized, he thinks of them as like almost unclean or like I don't mm-hmm. I forget what exactly what he says. But the mother drinks alcohol, like the, like the they don't like cover their heads, um, and all the actually all the authority figures, a lot of the authority figures that he um, comes into friction with are women because of that. Like his the therapist that 
comes and assesses whether he's ready to see the teacher is also um, pointedly a woman, I think. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I, the, the movie plays like, like I guess the, like the difference in our experience is that whereas, yeah, you can see the mechanisms as they go. And I think familiarity with the, the, the Dardens will do that. I think to me, I sort of like pulled moment to moment and I don't like I can sort of see the trajectory, but I'm like very much involved in any given moment that I don't really I don't really mind per se where it takes me. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. I hadn't read too much about what other people had said about this, but it's interesting if it's being read um, more generally as um, a, a defense of the the this kind of compassionate liberal sort of system because one of the things I liked about the movie was it seemed like it was demonstrating that there's the system which might have really caring individuals in it kind of doing their best to sort of compassionately address someone like Ahmed and yet it's failing like it's not as you said Evan it's it's not none of that all that kind of bounces off of him and it needs to be there needs to be some kind of more profound like literal brokenness <laughs> to to um to help that and i i think like as a progressive liberal person i like the idea of those systems but i also like being pushed back against that um the, the idea that the film was pushing back against that and that's one of the things i liked about it and i think the other thing that was interesting with the about this film is i like you lawrence i sort of the dardens w- were filmmakers that i sort of discovered early on in my uh, cinephilia and I just adored them and when it, my experience in watching this movie was a little bit more like what you were saying Evan where I just kind of felt like I was seeing the mechanism work where it, initially it worked on me as it felt very organic but this time it just felt very um, it just felt very studied for all of the sort of handheld intimate camera that makes it seem so like it would seem natural and or- organic and you're just kind of following someone live it felt it felt very constructed to me oddly and and then and then I sort of felt like I was kept a distance from Ahmed himself which is problematic for me from a character perspective but then it does sort of tie into I think the criticisms that it seems like some people are making about this being troubling in terms of it presenting this radicalized Muslim um, that you don't even see how he got there but he just is there and he's sort of this mystery so but I guess it's um encouraging in some ways Lawrence to know that it, I guess it worked for you <laughs> that they're kind of their way of following Ahmed as a as a character I mean you felt connected to him as a character I guess is that is that kind of uh I don't know if connected or... is the right word but I don't know that he was like a like, I, I guess I don't know that it was a problem for me that he was, like, as you put it, like, a mystery. Like, mm. I, like I think he's, I don't know, he's, like, a, a very awkward teenage boy. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I very much empathize with him, like, running around awkwardly in that, like, physical, <laughs> in that physical education mm-hmm. thing at the juvenile detention center. Um, yeah. No, I and, and like sort of that, that, too. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, like, the whole... Like I think part of why I do re- I did respond to this I don't I do think it is like a lesser Darden work um, but it is because it is this younger boy and so the context like 
like people have taken issue with the context of it and it doesn't bother me as much I think because he is so young and like it 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 takes pains to show that he is I don't know like malleable and easily influenced and doesn't really understand what like the extent of his actions like all, all, all that kind of like it worked fairly well for me I think the main criticism I have with the movie is that it may be like his journey to his like transformation maybe like the surprise of the end I suppose was not quite a surprise to me and maybe like the ending is mo- is where I have my reservations and I'm not sure mm-hmm. th- th- that it gets there like sufficiently um I, I don't like the yeah. ending at all I- yeah, yeah, I, I don't like really it either. Phony. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you I think, funny? I think <laughs> phony. Oh, phony. phony. Oh, I was like, that's an interesting I thought you said not, funny not, too. Not, not, not funny, no. Yeah, uh, it does, yeah, it does feel a little more imposed than maybe I, I normally feel with our ends. So I think mm-hmm. I think I think for the majority of its running time, it's a really good movie about how uh, social systems we have in place to deal with kids who are troubled uh for whatever reason whatever religion uh completely fail to help them Mm -hmm. uh and then all of a sudden it it posits that the way that this kid can be saved is by falling off a roof (laughs) which well (laughs) is not really helpful or hopeful yeah. any way at all it's like you yeah we have like these right. elaborate you know structures in place to to educate <laughs> youth but if they take one bad turn he's not malleable he some sometime before the movie began he became radicalized and he never mm-hmm. wavers from that until he falls off a building like mm-hmm. he he does not shift he he cannot be persuaded by family by teachers by friends by uh the pretty farm girl who in uh, inexplicably has a crush mm-hmm. on him none of none of that will will alter him but you know just this near death experience is what is needed to to change his mind just it's kind of icky to me yeah I, I don't know. I, I, I really like the movie when it's when it's following procedures, when it's following these the failure of these systems. And then it uh, I don't like the end. And I, I the whole fact of of the Dardens as old white guys making this movie about the young Muslim yeah. guy and specifically, you know, Catholic white guys talking about uh, the you know, the unreformability of this radical Muslim uh, strikes me as, if not, you know, outright offensive, then at least uh, uh, wrong-headed, maybe in poor taste. Well, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. I think it's like a weird consequence of the way that they construct their narrative that's almost, like, I, I wouldn't really take issue with your characterization of the movie in that way, but, like, it's almost... Like, I can't imagine the Dardens consciously, like, conceiving it that way. It's just, like, they they start from the place where the film ends and, like, move backwards. And that's kind of how all of their films feel constructed to me. And, like, that inevitability when it's tied to, like, Marion Cotillard's job situation or, 
you know, this, the more kind of like almost spiritual stuff that's happening in kid with a bike doesn't get wrapped up in these like thornier questions. And there's a way in which like just their, their fundamental idea of how like a narrative operates, like doesn't play well when placed against like this particular milieu. It's like, yeah, I'm not sure like I find it like offensive per se, but it just, it just seems like a, a, a consequence of the way that they understand how their movies work. Yeah, like right. I think... Oh, sorry, oh, no, I was just going to say, I mean, it just seems like that ties into the fact that they're old Catholic white. Like, they don't understand... They they don't understand what they're not seeing, maybe, or something, or how it might read. I mean, I think their intentions are really, I don't know, yeah, worthy. I'd... But they don't see what might be problematic of, about it, I guess. Yeah, like, I think they're, like, I don't think they're ideological filmmakers in the sense that, like, I don't think they're, like, really exploring an ideology so much as they're just interested in this, in this boy. Um, And, like, 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 I guess, like, the problems a lot of people have with the movie and that I think maybe you, you, Sean, also have with the movie is that he's not really interested in Islam as a religion is that they're not really in, interested in, in the religion so much as they're interested in the questions of change for this particular boy. And like, right. I think the, like it's like the problems stem from there because they're not interested in the questions that have been by virtue of this being a canon playing international film festivals that people will ask about it. Like, it's just not interested in those questions in answering them or in like necessarily engaging with them it's just that's just how they've always worked there there's mm-hmm. no there's no specific reason why this character had to be muslim for exactly. the story exactly. that yeah. they wanted to tell right. no, exactly. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It, like it could, just, it could yeah. very easily be a, a young just catholic a, radical white, right yeah right and, yeah just an angry kid who yeah i mean there's exactly yeah and i wish it had been because it does seem like they're i don't know they're they 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 feel like uh, because they themselves are white people and they can see themselves as individualized and they're not a part of a larger group that is a, a stereotype that they feel like they can oh we'll just make him this muslim kid that's fine as an individual without understanding the sort of larger stereotype that's operating for you know a particular group of people that you that is kind of ines- inescapable but i think as I don't know if a white person might take it for granted that you might be seen as an individual, not as part of a larger stereotyped group. Well, I mean, I think like when they were asked in an interview with, I think, Filmmaker Magazine about it was that like, okay, why did you choose to make this about a young Muslim boy? And I mean, their answer was basically like, well, it's like like terrorism is a problem in the place that we live in. And... (laughs) Like we don't want to. Yeah. Like we don't want to. Yeah. Like basically, they, basically they didn't want to say that they were shying away from, like social, from a certain social issue, by virtue of their I don't know, position. I suppose. Like, but again, I, mean, again, I feel like that that's just kind of how they operate, no matter what the milieu is. Like, you know, do they have like a real like dedicated interest to the particulars of, like labor relations in belgium like i don't really think so like that's the material of two days one night they just they i think what they're sort of saying that interview is they just like look around like pick kind of news story items to construct their like faith 
or grace parables and they're yeah they're just kind of they're blind to the questions that it raises as you said mm-hmm. right yeah yeah I think the other movies maybe raise similar questions about their particular milieus. They're just not as sensitive a a topic given their own perspective. Like, I'm not sure. In fact, I might find like Rosetta to be a more like uncomfortable experience for me in terms of like the way that that film deals with poverty and its character than Mm. like this, for example. Um, But yeah, like the conception of Rosetta, you mean like, yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like, she seems to me a, a more troubling character from the perspective of the film. And again, the way the kind of, like, mechanics of, of their storytelling works, perhaps for me, than than Ahmed. But I can understand why one might respond that way, given mm-hmm. their particular position in this case. I guess I'm just saying, I think they've, they continue to be the Dardens. They have been the Dardens, and they will <laughs> keep being the Dardens. Darden going to Darden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely credence to the like the criticisms that have been lodged against the young Ahmed. I guess, like, if I come at it from the position of I'm looking at their entire filmographies, the way that they've worked before, the way that they've dealt with their characters before, and the way that they're dealing with this particular character, like, I guess you could say it's irresponsible, but it doesn't strike me in any way as like, um, the like, I guess you could say that they should be doing something differently. Um, because they're not dealing with, I don't know, Belgian labor relations versus um, radicalization. Um, but also, I think some of the the backlash against this movie has been maybe overblown. I don't know. Uh, I will agree with that. Yeah, I don't yeah. think it's like an evil film or anything. Yeah, like, e- like evil is something that ha- like people have said about it. And I don't, yeah, that, that goes a little too far for me. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I mean I don't think it's evil either. It's just I mean I I don't know if you guys have relatives, but I have a lot of relatives who just listen to right-wing media all the time and they I mean they literally think that the only good muslim is a dead muslim kind of thing. I mean they that's literally what they believe. And so when I'm confronted with a film like this that I think is trying to be compassionate and yet to me if my family were to see this, I'd be like, yeah, See, that's what that's what happens when you become you're a Muslim. You become radicalized and you want to kill people. And the only way to stop you is if you, you know, break your back. <laughs> and again, I don't I don't think that that's what their intention is. But it just frustrates me that it seems like there's no sense of just how strong the Islamophobia is um, in. I don't know. Maybe it's not in Belgium, but it it sure is in the circles the right wing circles that i am connected to um with just family so yeah i don't think it's evil i just think it's deeply troubling (laughs) all right well i will i will close this out with a uh religious film that i did like and that is Mm -hmm. uh terrence malick's hidden life oh i missed that uh, one yeah i i don't know that it's possible to spoil it because I mean the story is is reasonably well known. It's about a, uh, uh, it's about a guy in Austria, right or Germany, Austria, Austria. Uh, he's Austrian, and, yeah. In World War Two, who uh, doesn't want to join the Nazis in fighting and killing people, 
because he thinks that Nazis are evil. And so he goes to jail and eventually dies. Uh, and that's basically the plot of A Hidden Life. <laughs> Yet it is three hours long. Uh, I don't know. This is this was the, the film I was most looking forward to going into the festival. I'm, as all, all right-thinking people are, a, a huge Terrence Malick fan. So anytime he has a new movie, it's, it's an event. But I'm weirdly kind of underwhelmed by Hidden Life, while at the same time, I can't really think of anything wrong with it. And I don't really know why. And I've been trying to think about my response to this. And, and Evan, you had you had a great response to it where you wrote that uh, initially you thought it was like his least good movie. And then you spent like the next two hours thinking about it instead of paying attention to the movie you're supposed to watch. Lauren's going to attest to that. Um, Poor Beanpole. <laughs> and I, I didn't quite have that experience. I know uh, Evan and Lawrence and I uh, talked to uh, to our friend Nathan Douglas, who who uh, was on this podcast a couple of years ago, I think, mm-hmm. uh, helping us cover VIF. He's also a, a filmmaker um, who uh, was much more up to date on the the historical events and the Catholic side of the story than I know I at least was. Um, I don't know. It's it's a Terrence Malick movie. There's lots of shots of wheat. There's a, a pretty girl. They there's a lot of talk in narration. It's very much connected to to spirituality and the land and. Uh, the impossibility of of being a moral human in a in a horrible world but uh i don't know there's something missing to me and i thought maybe it was just like a simple plot thing like uh i the the hero what what's his name uh franz franz uh is not a conscientious objector in the sense that we normally uh, understand the term as as a pacifist, somebody who is opposed to killing in all instances, and thus uh, in America at least, although not in Nazi-occupied Austria, is is, is exempt from serving in the military. Uh, that's not his objection. He's not against war per se. He's just against Nazis. Uh, so my the thing I kept wondering throughout this movie is why he doesn't just lie about his loyalty to oath to Hitler and then work to subvert the army either or just run away and join a resistance group. I am... well, no, go ahead. I mean, I, I think that is sort of the, like the revelation that I think I had about the movie that really made me sort of turn around on it was mm-hmm. I was sort of also trying to figure out why I wasn't responding to it like I often do with Malick films. And it sort of dawned on me that we hear so little of his voice in the film. And obviously Malick's films don't usually have a lot of traditional dialogue, but you get all of the the Malickian, like, whispery voiceover. Mm -hmm. But almost none of that comes from Franz, and especially when the film is most concerned about his, like, plight in the prison as he's dealing with 
the like the consequences of his unwillingness to square this oath to Hitler. And I think it's worth saying that the, it's not even just that he objects to Nazis; it's that he specifically objects to swearing an oath to Hitler, like right. to saying mm-hmm. to enunciating the words mm-hmm. that he will like serve Hitler. And so there's a right. there's a way in which like the whole movie is like concerned about speech in a way that mm-hmm. is unusual for someone like Malik who doesn't deal mm-hmm. with speech and i think a, a way that someone like poor boy who who is also interested in like language right does and yet the the whole movie is about his own inability i think to articulate for himself why he is doing what he's doing like there is something deep and like pre-lingual about his like repulsion and aversion to this oath and i think he can't even articulate for himself why he's doing it and it was sort of that realization that the film is withholding his voice very specifically from us because he's being asked to swear an oath he's asked to speak and he can't and he doesn't even he's not even able to explain to himself why he can't do it that made the movie suddenly like very moving to me see i i would read that differently as in the first half or so of the movie he's he's unsure of what he's going to do he's considering various options he's talking to people he's talking to his wife he talks to his his priest uh, he talks to his brother he talks to various people we hear him in voiceover going over uh his various options and and what he's going to do but once he's decided uh that's when we don't hear him anymore and and it shifts to the wife's perspective and various other people telling him you don't have to do this but once he's made up his mind there's no further need for him to discuss it he he, he can't be persuaded and i think it's it's that uh it's that commitment and that willingness uh to to die for this belief that is what interests Malik, and that's why you know my little concerns about like plausibility of the plot or whatever aren't really relevant to what to what Malik is is interested in. He's interested in this question of faith, and I I and this one guy's example of 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 that and how it expresses itself in this particular way, I guess. His own kind of self martyrdom, I guess. That's what well, I think your description of the like the movie is like accurate to me. So like once he makes the decision, it sort of shuts down, and as Evan said, it sort of becomes like what wh- when we expect it the most, like we don't hear from Franz himself. Like, and I think that that's part of what I find quite moving about the movie. Um, I'm not like. I wasn't here for Malik this decade, let's say. Um, <laughs> um, but with this one. Like I, it kind of took me by surprise. Like I, uh, I was with it for a very long time, and then I thought it lost me for a long stretch, and then the, and then it ended. And I don't want to spoil what comes up, but something came up, and I started weeping, basically, um, very much mm-hmm. to my surprise. Um, and I think, like as you said, it's like a movie. I don't know if I'd say faith, but it's more like like belief for me and i think his silence here is kind of what was so moving like we don't get a window into his thoughts during this time but like we but but at the same time we can't really take his silence as like absolute unwavering belief like yes he doesn't like mm-hmm. he he doesn't capitulate to the nazis but that doesn't mean that internally he's not 
like wrestling he's not wrestling with this these questions like it's like a state of constant like overturning and reaffirmation that what he's doing like even when everyone else is telling him that you don't have to do this like it doesn't matter like the nazis are going to lose anyway or like the war is going to end like 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 your little action is not going to do anything but it's his like struggle with this that we don't get a window into but that we eventually like but that we sort of live through throughout the rest of the i don't know last two well, hours of the movie and and the last like half of the movie is like a series of of confrontations with him and people who i think basically pose the question to him of like why are you doing this and there's one of the few like actual like sustained dialogue scenes in the latter half of the film is between Bruno Gans as like one of his interrogators and and Franz and he very clearly like says like basically like why are you doing this and he like Franz sort of like stumbles over an answer and then just kind of like says he doesn't really know like he doesn't have an explanation for what he's what he's doing or at least he can't he can't explain it. It's it's beyond words. He can't. He can't. He can't argue for it. It's it's just the simple black and white thing. Like it, it, he would be lying to swear allegiance to Hitler, so he won't do it. Like then, there's no amount of reasoning around that. Like either, either you can do it or you can't. Like and <laughs> people can argue with him about whether it's good or bad for him to do it, but it doesn't matter to him because he's decided that that initial act is is the moral mm -hmm. question. Uh it reminded me a lot of uh uh I was a philosophy major for a while and and we had a an ethics class. And we were studying uh, uh, Immanuel Kant and categorical imperative that you should never do anything uh, unless your action were made a universal law would be a good thing. Uh, and the example that our, our professor, who I think was a Jesuit, um, this was at Gonzaga, uh, gave was uh, say you're in uh, Nazi occupied Belgium and Anne Frank is in your attic and the Nazi knocks on the door and says, is Anne Frank here? Uh, what do you do? Uh, and the answer that Kant would say is that you have to tell the truth because if you tell a lie, then lying is always a, a good thing and uh, truth has no meaning and the world you know, collapses. And that's kind of what Franz chooses to do here. He chooses to, to tell the truth and that he refuses to lie to save himself. Uh, even though, you know, the, the moral consequences of him lying are are so minimal, uh, I don't know. It's 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 very frustrating to me. I hated that example. It made me really dislike Kant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> like I guess uh, the question also... that. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Lawrence. Well, I mean, like one of the I think we discussed this briefly, but like it sort of made me think a bit when we were talking about it of like the dilemma in silence and whether he I was just thinking about that was to yeah. step on the um the face uh, of yeah the the, the face of Jesus yeah. the face mm -hmm. of Christ basically right. and a, a a verbal renunciation of his faith yeah right. it, yeah yeah exactly and i think he has a conversation with Ferrer that's basically like we'll just we'll just do it and still go on and do your works afterwards or whatever 
and mm-hmm. but it, it it's that like act that like okay does that matter or not that is sort of the question here and here it very much does not matter and he knows that but he he must like like his struggle is believing that it must somehow matter in a way that he can't articulate and that yeah. and, mm-hmm. and and that's why i think like when it ends and when like the the title sort of snaps into place for me um is why i is i think why i responded so strongly to it by the end i mean it it ends with a george Eliot quote that that really kind of makes the movie but uh yeah I don't know. I, well, I, I, I'm, I'm still undecided. Uh, I, I don't want to give the quote away when you watch it. I'm also, <laughs> I'm also curious, Sean, also like maybe the extent to which like the, the approach of like the visuals maybe is partly what was like underwhelming for you. Um, I think it was while you were in 14, uh, we, I was with uh, Lawrence, you were there, right? We were talking to Devin. Yeah. Uh, who's a cinematographer in Vancouver. And, you know, he was pointing out a number of things that certainly I never would have noticed with my non-cinematographer eye about um, the extent to which he could tell the film was uh, sort of, the images were touched in post uh, to maybe boost Mm. the light where they hadn't captured enough natural light or um, to change some other like colors and things around it. He could see those fingerprints on the film. And uh, the film was not shot by Emmanuel Lubezki, who has uh, mm. uh, shot most of his other uh, recent films, all of the other recent films, I think. Uh, and I did kind of like, I wouldn't have picked up on those specific details, but I did sense something different about the way that the film looks though. I kind of think like the way that the film looks actually maybe works for me. Like it, it is in a Maliki, you know, relative to Malik, like a more austere movie in some ways um, than his other work. So I don't know. Did the, did the visuals like play at all? In I, that mean, it, you, it, I mean, I know like a 10th of uh, what Devin does about cinematography. So uh, <laughs> I wouldn't dare to comment on that, but yeah, I mean, it all, it all just felt kind of samey to me. Like it's it's stuff we've seen before from Malik, and I don't know. I, even like the recent ones, like uh, Night of Cups and uh, Song to Song, song, and, song. And, and and what was the one before that? To the Wonder. To the Wonder. To the Wonder. Yeah. Uh, those all felt you know much more exciting visually to me. Like they were doing different things throughout their running time and things that he hadn't really done before with just the way that the the movie looked and what he's and what he's focusing on, whether it's like the the actor's body or the different spaces of the the apartments and the homes or like the Carl's Jr. drive-in or the fields of wheat or what have you. Whereas whereas this is is very much, you know, green fields in a mountain or gray prison. And and that's pretty much it. Like the camera, you know, rushes forward through a green field. I'm like, that's cool. And then he does it like 10 more times and like that's less cool every time <laughs> so yeah it, it didn't it looks it looks cool <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, it yeah compared to like every other malik film i 
which is you know a ridiculously high standard obviously it it didn't blow me away in, in the way that every other one has even yeah i guess i think that, that Devin, sorry even, even the ones that i'm more like mixed on like like knight of cups or even song to song or something uh yeah yeah i mean i think the the movie isn't quite as like um i don't know fragmented maybe as like knight of cups in song to song where like the montage is generating like a lot of energy here sure i don't know that the cuts are quite as like i don't know charged as in some like at least the first passage of knight of cups which i really do quite like um i think what devin was saying about the cinematography was more that he could like it's like the cinematographer here is i think malik's usual camera operator something like that like longtime camera <laughs> operator um but anyway, well, what he was saying about the, the images was basically that he could tell that they were going for something that they couldn't quite get. Mm -hmm. And that's the first time he's felt that with the Malik film, at least this mm -hmm. decade. Like in The Tree of Life, I think like the images are far, like are much different. But I think in, in some sense, like that kind of works for the movie for me, like those sort of imperfections in the sense of, I mean, even the fact that it's his camera operator doing the cinematography, like because the sense of like, not physicality per se, but like the, his other movies this decade, like from Tree of Life onwards, say like the images work in a very like symbolic kind of level, like not like a one to one symbolism, but like when you see like, I don't know, the toddler like walking the line in in Song to Song where you see like the little toddler playing with Rooney Mara um, and they're in like the field, like near the oil refinery on one side and there's like the fields of wheat on the other and he's like walking on the border between them like that plays like as like symbolic in a way that no image in a hidden life plays as symbolic like there's a there's just a different quality to the images to me and the way that the images are actually used to like convey experience that feels different from his other work this decade yeah, I don't know. They they feel like less like ethereal to me, and yeah, there's less like this kind mm -hmm. of like sacred quality to them. Yeah, it's like less. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a it's just a, like a less mysterious movie. It's just more linear and straightforward. Well, I guess I would argue. I think the myst the mystery is all internalized in exactly in yeah. head, and right. we don't have access to that. And it, rather than the sort of mystery being externalized in the the images, exactly. Yeah. yeah, like there's a lot of emphasis on just like I don't know things like just falling over. Like you have the like when she's playing with the kids and there's like the milk spilled everywhere, or um, when he's going into like I, I forget what it is. He's like in town and he's being shepherded from one location to the other, and like he knocks over an umbrella, and th th there's an emphasis on like the um, him writing the umbrella there's like it's his most like imminent movie this decade i think like precisely because of the, the questions that it's dealing with like like there's a present there's like a like not a here and now like there's an emphasis on like that this present action must matter in some way and and in a way that like his previous movies have sort of like gestured towards like I don't know the afterlife and like questions like that. Whereas here, this there's more of an urgency to his actions, precisely because of the context of his like 
impending execution, I suppose. That, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like I say, I, I'm, I'm still struggling with it. I don't know. I, I like it, obviously. <laughs> but... <laughs> we can all see yeah. it again in two months. Yeah. <laughs> Looking forward to that. Okay. Uh, so, speaking of seeing things again, uh, I, I promised a, a friend of the site that I would mention that uh, The Whistlers, which we talked about on this podcast, will be playing in Seattle in a couple of weeks at the Seattle Romanian Film Festival coming to SIF in mid-November. And, of course, Parasite opens like next week, I think. Mm-hmm. All over. Uh, Hidden Life is coming out soon. Anything else we talk about have a release? Young Ahmed? No, Young Ahmed. I don't think yeah. so. Um, maybe. Oh, yeah, Young Ahmed, I think, yeah. I think next year for Young Ahmed. The Dardens usually get a release, although, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, this is controversial Dardens, so. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely been picked up. I just... I think the release date is not till next year. I bet I bet Whistlers gets a release too. That's a that's a crowd pleaser. <laughs> it's Romanian crowd pleasers. <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, other than just the Seattle Romanian Film Festival coming in two weeks to to. Okay. Uh, any final thoughts anyone has on the 2019 Vancouver International Film Festival? Mm. All right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thank you all for uh, for for doing this, staying up uh, late for me. I don't know how all you you all stay up late, oh, but uh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if you have any more reviews planned for the site. I, for one, I am done. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I think at least Michael will have. He said he was going to write something on the short, the Canadian short films at the festival. So I think we have at least that to look forward to at Seattle Screen Scene. But otherwise, uh, yeah, I'll probably throw up a couple of reviews of something, but just so I can get something written down. But yeah, right on. Uh, I don't know. I don't think we need to to do the where can people find you. I think anyone listening to this probably knows where they can find all of us. <laughs> probably. So. That's a fair assumption. All of our new <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Uh, thanks, you all. And uh, yeah, maybe we will do a, yeah, uh, another one next year. <laughs> Sounds good. Sounds good. All right. Thanks. Bye, all. <laughs>